you know, uh, I'm doing a message right now, and this is uh, basically pagan Christianity, question mark. Pagan meaning heathenistic, uh, that which is contrary to the way of Christ, the religions of the heathen, and so forth. Pagan Christianity. Will the real church please stand up as a subtitle? And that's a question mark as well. And that's because a book came out a few months back called Pagan Christianity. Uh, Barna was one of the writers, and I'm familiar with seeing his name through many, many years because he's a researcher as far as like where the church is at and what the church believes and, you know, ch- you know changing trends within the church and its convictions and so forth. So I was a little surprised to see his name on the uh, title of that book. It was the second author, Viola. I think it was Frank Viola was the first. Wasn't familiar with him. And uh, anyway, I was checking out some of their claims because their claim is that church needs to be done differently and that churches shouldn't really have pastors and elders overseeing a congregation in a building and a pulpit. And, you know, it's supposed to be, should this be some people, you know, maybe just two or three meeting at homes and what have you. And in fact, uh, George Barna said, who's one of the authors there, he said you could even have church on the golf course, you know. Just you and your buddy on a Sunday morning, you know, or it doesn't have to be a Sunday morning, but that could be your church service, just golfing together and so forth. And uh, that's in another book of his. And I shake my head. I'm like, wow, Lord, what is going on? You know, and I do have a hard time with a lot of the trappings that come with a lot of the, you know, so-called mega church, where it becomes more of a production and rather than worship of the Lord, it's theater, you know, and rather than preaching the word, it's entertainment I have a problem with all of that. We've preached against that for years. Uh, and the Bible says preach the word, amen. So I have a problem with that. But at the same time, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, amen. You don't just redo church according to what you feel it should be like and ignore a ton of scriptures on the subject. So uh, I'm all for, and we have, praise God, we've had home fellowships. We have a lot of home groups in our fellowship every week, home Bible studies and so forth. And uh, those are very, very important. And we will continue to do that. And certainly the early church, uh, they met in homes. Uh, for the first few centuries of church history, you pretty much had to meet in a home because Christianity was pretty much illegal, right? So the societal situation kind of forced you to meet at home. When it was legalized, Christians began to assemble together in bigger groups. Uh, that doesn't mean they weren't in bigger groups back in the you know, early centuries of church history. We know, you know, the 120 meeting in the upper room or we have Peter's. When you go to Peter's, if you go to Israel, which we've had a number of trips there, and you go to what's called Peter's house, you know, you see the graffiti. There was a, a Christian church there in the first century, and it looks like they, you know, there was one huge room, and there's glass. You can see through the glass that a number of Christians must have met there. A lot of times houses, sometimes homes that belong to the richer people were turned into churches, you know. So there's no scripture, so I'm not, we're not against using a home. I mean, our fellowship pretty much started in a home, you know, and we still meet in homes. We're, we're at whatever the scriptures say. The scriptures do, do not say, thou shalt not use a home or thou shalt meet in a home, amen? There's no scripture command on that. And you get into legalism where you say, church has to be done this way or else, unless certain scriptures say church must be done this way. You know what I'm saying? So if there are certain scriptures that talk about what the church is to look like, we're to bow down to the Lord in those, amen, and obey him in that way. And what's happened with this book called Pagan Christianity, it's, it's, it's uh, actually, it's very, very, and many, many, you know, biblical scholars have pointed out that it's not really scholarship, you know. There's not a whole lot of footnotes with any depth and sources of, of you don't see a bunch of leading scholars agreeing with their assessment of church history or, with, or, or of ecclesiology, what the church is supposed to look like, or so forth. That doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong, so that's why I always go to the Scripture, you know, and, and test these different things as to what the church is supposed to be, look like. So basically their idea was that the church was very, very informal. They just met in homes. You kind of had a gathering people, and they would just all talk about truth together, and they would use their different gifts but there wasn't, you know, pastors and, uh, you know, they, they act as though there shouldn't be, you know, you don't need to oversee, uh, elders overseeing a f- congregation. Uh, you don't need a sermon to be preached, you know. In fact, they seem to advocate against that. And I'm like, man, if I'm the enemy, that's what I'm trying to pull off. 
Because today that sounds good because everybody's into anarchy, right? Worship leaders, that's not, a, a, that's not really, that's pagan too and so forth. And, and all these ideas basically for the most part came with the rise of Roman Catholicism in the fourth century. You know, and I'm pretty much uh, giving the gist of uh, some of the things that I've read and so forth. And that, that's how, because Roman Catholicism is paganized, you know, therefore their influence on the church and the church's structure today in having a pastoral leadership. By the way, I, last time I checked, the Roman Catholic Church had, you know, cardinals and popes and bishops and all kinds of things that aren't in the scripture, you know. I don't see most Protestants doing that. Uh, but anyway, it's interesting. When you look at it, I want to ask a question. Was it, and was it at the fourth century? Now, truly, it is true that buildings and so forth were able to, after Christianity was legal, but they don't really address the societal situation that the reason they met in homes for three centuries is because, guess what? You could be torched to death <laughs> if you, uh, because Christianity, as I mentioned, was illegal uh, for the first few centuries of church history and had little respites where it, was, wasn't, where it was legal to actually you know, meet or read the Bible under certain emperors, but that usually didn't last very long because there were several waves of persecution. So I want to look at this issue and the importance of the church, and there's various different ways we could attack this issue. And that's why this is probably going to be, you know, pagan Christianity, question mark. Will the real church please stand up, question mark? Part one, because right now I want to look at the importance of going to church in regard to Christian leadership, because the book has a strong emphasis on just downplaying leadership and its importance uh, of having Christian leaders lead the flock. And being a Christian leader, that made me really think, hmm, really? Because I'm very into the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy. We call them pastoral epistles for reason. Uh, Titus, because these were the leaders, the pastors or the uh, elders term pastor and elders is believed by most scholars to be used interchangeably. There were elders that had different functions within the body, but in many of these groups, I mean, there are thousands and thousands of home groups that call themselves churches, but they don't have any elders. They don't have any leadership. They don't have any accountability. You know, somebody's cheating on his wife. They don't go before the leadership of the church when it says bring them before the church after you've confronted them one-on-one -on -one, and then one or two more with you and then before the church. And it's a recipe for disaster. Now, I'm, I'm fine with having church in your home. I think that's awesome. I think that's what a lot of people should be doing. In fact, we have a number of home fellowships, live stream fellowships that have popped up through our ministry. Uh, there's a new one starting right now, I think, in Washington with Javen. Uh, and praise God, th those are beautiful, beautiful things. It's not about the structure, you know. The, the structure doesn't make it good or bad in of itself. Amen. It's what's happening within that structure. And it's very important that we understand this. Uh, however, uh, one thing, the, the irony of this whole thing is we're trying to make sure that the home groups that pass up, that, that pop up uh, as a result of Blessed Hope Chapel and our live stream groups, that they would have some leadership besides us. Amen? That we'd eventually be able to have them appoint elders and maybe have pastors because we recognize the importance of having leadership in a church. And certainly the early church did. So I just thought it was amusing because one of the things I'm somewhat conversant with is the early church fathers. Ha! And when they said, well, this idea of a, of a church having leadership like this and functioning like it does today, it, you know, that didn't really come, back and come around until the 4th century under, under, you know, after Constantine legalized Christianity. What? Let me read to you the Didache mentions, and this was read around 90 or so A.D., in the first century, most, many scholars believe, maybe just after the first century, says, on the Lord's own day, and by the way, they start saying, ah, Sunday, you know, that's pagan too. What? Or they're at least, they make implications that, that the, early, the early church wasn't really, it wasn't important to really meet on Sunday. Well, uh, we read in the scripture that they were to take collections on the first day of the week. The first day of the week was a work day in the Roman Empire. But geez, what happened that significantly had impacted the church where they, many of them were no longer meeting on Saturdays as they had in the synagogues. These, all, early all the early Christians were Jews for the most part, right? But they started meeting on Sunday. What happened? What great event? Jesus what? Amen. Several, he rose from the dead, man. 
He rose on Sunday morning, and then you see the early church getting together. You see them getting, taking collections on the first day of the week. Talks about them meeting as well in Acts on the first day of the week. And that was called the Lord's Day. In the second century, they had a name for the first day of the week. The Lord's Day. And on, in the Didache, written around 90 AD, we read, and this was a church writing that went through all the churches that was accepted by the early Christians. It wasn't scripture, but it had to do with praxis and, and also uh, the, the teaching of the scripture, but the practice. On the Lord's own day, there it is, talking about Sunday. On the Lord's own day, assemble in common. Assemble is like a command. Assemble in common to break bread and offer thanks. But first confess your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. Now, it's interesting, Justin Martyr, and Justin Martyr is considered one of the top apologists of the early Christian church, writing in the generation after the apostles, right? Around 140 or so, listen to what he writes. On the day called after the sun, what day would that be? Sunday, the day that's called after the sun. It's not called after the sun, but on the day you know, called, yeah, after the sun. It's named after the sun Sunday. There is a meeting for which all those dwelling in the cities or in the countryside come together. Sound familiar? Sounds kind of like what we do. On Sunday, we, from whether you're on the countryside, you're further away, or, you know, you're in the city, we come together. Different cities are represented here. The records of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time allows. That sounds a lot like Blessed Hope too, right? <laughs> Oh, is he going a little over, you know? Uh, when the reader has stopped, the one who is presiding admonishes. There's someone presiding. That's a leader. Admonishes. That means warns the congregation and encourages us by a sermon. <laughs> by a sermon. Wow. By a sermon to the imitation of those good examples, you know? Meaning, man, let's follow Jesus' example. Amen. Sound familiar? Follow the example of Paul. Then we all stand up together and lift up our prayers. And as I said previously, when we have finished our prayer, bread is brought forth and wine and water. So we come, we get up, and I, we confess our sins. Amen. Try it almost every Sunday before we take the Lord's Supper, man. I encourage you to confess your sins before the Lord. I also have you stand up. Isn't that interesting? Wow, this sounds real familiar, doesn't it? The one, uh, the one who is presiding offers up prayers and thanksgiving according to the ability, and the people acclaim their assent with him by saying, Amen. Amen? Oh, you just did that too. Wow. There is the distribution of the participation of the part of each one in the gifts for which thanks has been offered. And we give gifts and we give money that helps support the work of the Lord that we do together and to minister to the poor and to minister to the needs. And they are sent to those who are not present through the deacons. So there's those who are sickly, those who... Uh, you know, can't participate that are helped as well. Uh, this sounds like, uh, like what we do pretty much every Sunday. We don't do it on Wednesday because it's our midweek study, but he's talking about what they would do on the day that's called after the sun on Sunday. Guess what? That wasn't pagan at all. Because guess what that service looked a lot like? What was happening at that same time in another religion that wasn't pagan, that wasn't considered pagan? They would gather at a place called the, I'll give you a hint, it starts with an S, the synagogue, amen, the Jews. So the Jews, do you remember Jesus went up uh, in Luke chapter 4 and other places and he would teach in the synagogues, right? They'd have a place where they'd have a scroll and he'd whip it out and he'd teach. And he would teach at these synagogues until, you know, they started having a harder and harder time with him. You go to the book of Acts in chap Acts chapter 9. You know, which we'll, we'll look at maybe a couple of passages later because they're very important. So the early church was definitely inf influenced. The scriptures don't give a lot of detail on church government and what the church, the way the church is supposed to practice. And if it mattered to the Lord God as far as exactly how it would look like, it would be in here, amen? So it allows some, some uh, liberty as far as how we get together and worship, whether you use a house or whether you use a building. I mean, I would love to use my house still. That's where we started in this fellowship, you know? And the fellowship was born out of our house, but it wasn't big enough, you know? And the home I have now is definitely not big enough. It's 1,800 square feet with, you know, not a whole lot of room uh, to, to have the entire assembly here. 
Although we have been able to meet midweek, sometimes during COVID in the backyard, that seemed to work, amen? Hopefully we'll be able to do that again. I'd love to keep doing that, you know, uh, you know, but some things aren't as feasible as others. But the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt meet at your home, or thou shalt not meet in a synagogue. Uh, the early Christians met in the synagogues and still had fellowship with one another there, as well as homes, and then eventually uh, in church buildings. But one thing we see very clearly is the very thing that they're decrying in this book, Pagan Christianity, as being influenced by the Roman Catholic Church, was actually happening centuries before the Roman Catholic Church even came about in the second century, right after the apostles, where you had assemblies. And it was happening among the early church and the apostles when they'd meet together at the synagogues. Not saying that's the only place they met. They definitely met in their homes as well. And we do that as well. We just don't throw the baby out with bathwater. I could put out to you a whole bunch of wrong things that are happening in church buildings today, you know. Tens of millions of dollars just wasted you know, uh, uh, and, and used for, you know, wrong reasons. But, I can, sh- but I can show you a lot of things that are happening in home fellowships. There's all kinds of heresies being birthed because there's no accountability. All kinds of people get into the New Apostolic Reformation and the prosperity gospel and teaching all these weird things that never get corrected. Does that mean any assembly in a home fellowship is going to be tainted then? No. So to paint with a broad brush, which is what these guys do, and to misuse history is unethical. It's wrong. It's immoral to ignore certain things that would show that your argument actually fails in many respects. To cause division in the body of Christ is a serious sin before the Lord. Now, it's interesting. Uh, We also see many, many scriptures that not only encourage the fellowship of together, but also that mention that there needs to be Christian leadership. It's, It's vital. It's important. But here we see, in what I just read from Justin Martyr, we see a distinct role of leaders in the flock, right? We see uh, gathering together on Sunday. We see gathering together to worship on Sunday. We see confession of sin before communion. We see the taking of communion, amen? We see a reverence, uh, that there's supposed to be a reverence for the things of the Lord, uh, and that there's also an order of worship. When you read these guys, it's like order's not real important and so forth, and you know, and we're all for, you know, like I said, home fellowships where you just get together and you have a Bible study. But don't confuse a Bible study between a couple people where there's no leadership, there's no accountability, right? And where you reject communion, right? And baptism isn't important. And all these different things that are, you know, a lot of people in this, these movements emphasize. Don't call that church, okay? It's something the church can do, but it's important that we're part of a local body, a local church where there is accountability, where there is leadership. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4.11, and he gave some as what? Apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Uh, it says for the equipping of the uh, saints, for the, uh, for the service, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So by a result, a result of being taught by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, is so we won't be led astray by every wind of doctrine, by men that lie in wait to deceive, And that's because God orchestrates the body in a certain way where he gifts different members in different ways and we all work together, amen? There's an accountability, which we'll read about in a little bit, to leadership. But there's also accountability of leadership to the flock because ultimately we all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? And any leader that gets off and is teaching false doctrine or living an impure, immoral life needs to be confronted as well. But we have what the Bible calls a a beautiful paradigm that the the Scripture gives us. In fact, go to Titus chapter 1. Because we see, now do we have the 12 apostles today? No, but we do have the writings. The writings of many of the apostles, right? And the prophets, amen? But guess what? Paul, who is called, called himself the least of the apostles, he was born out of due time and wasn't one of the 12, right? You might call him the 13th apostle, they appointed who? 
They knew they would die off. They knew they were unique. We're not saying that there weren't more people with an apostolic or an apostolus, but not the, the kind of the 12, because in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and elsewhere, we put scriptures together, we see that the 12 apostles were unique, amen? Their names are written in New Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21 and 22. And there wouldn't, there wouldn't be successors of more apostles to them. Well, how would they keep the leadership going? Well, they appointed elders or pastors. Some use the term bishops, okay, overseers. And he gave, that's why it says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And we believe here, and many other, others believe as well, is that pastors are teachers and teachers are pastors. I'm sorry, not, not true. Not all teachers are pastors, and not, you know, but elders are pastors and pastors are elders is what I meant to say. That's the same basic role in the church. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we read this. And this is basically now I'm showing you where Paul told Timothy and Titus, he had them appoint elders. These elders weren't voted on. It wasn't a congregational thing as to who was the most popular. Uh, it was, uh, they were appointed by the leadership of the church. In this case, Timothy uh, and Timothy, first and second Timothy, and Titus in the letter to Titus. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order that what remains at a point what? A point what? What's Titus supposed to appoint? Elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, any man, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer, because an elder is to be an overseer, he has oversight, must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able what? both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. In other words, an overseer, an elder, has to be watchful over the congregation so he could refute. He has to be faithful to the word so he could refute false doctrine. So he needs to be a man of the word. He needs to know the word. He needs to know what doctrine is out there. Knows how to know how to refute them so he can protect the flock. Amen? Now it's interesting, when you go to 1 Timothy chapter five, 3, you see Paul gives a similar list similar uh, qualifications and so forth in chapter 3. Uh, and then when you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, look what he says about the elders. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. So he's talking about elders who what? The elders who what? Who they, they rule, okay? They lead. They rule well, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those, now what does he mean by double honor? Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. And the labor is worthy of his what? Of his wages. Now this is fascinating to me because uh, he's talking about leaders being actually financially supported. And uh, it's fascinating to me because I didn't want support when I was a new pastor. You know, I was a, I was a full-time tile setter and... You know, I felt like, hey, you know what? If I can do this and pastor at the same time, however long the Lord has that, great, you know? Because I, I never, if anybody knows me, I've, I'm, I'm, and maybe a little bit of pride or what, but I hate taking money from people, you know? And it was the hardest thing for me to do for the first several years of my ministry, you know, until I, until I finally uh, realized enough people said, you're going to steal my blessing, you know? And I was like, I heard that over and over again, man. <laughs> what do you say to that, by the way, <laughs> you know? And uh, so the, the, the leaders of the fellowship got me together with them when the fellowship had grown. And there was, and you know, I've never been the treasurer. I've never been in charge of the money. I've, I've loved it that way because I don't like to think about those things. I don't even want to be in touch, in, involved in those things, you know. I've had to make decisions with elders, you know. But as an elder board, we make decisions like that. But they had let me know that they had come to the conclusion that I needed to go full time as their pastor because the finances were there. That way I could give more attention to counseling and ministering to them and so forth. Which, you know, it was great for my home life, by the way, because my wife was sure happy to have me back between work and, and ministry, right? And I've always tried to make sure that, because you can't be an elder unless your household is run well. First Timothy chapter 3, 
talks about you must manage his household well and, uh, and, and uh, manage his children well and so forth. And, and, uh, and praise God, by the grace of God, you know, uh, when that happened, I think I only had, you know, Holly at that time. And she's still a huge blessing and love all my kids are great. But at the same time, when that happened, I understood it made a lot of sense. But the only reason way I could accept that is because I saw scriptures like this. And if you look at my 30 plus years of teaching at Blessed Hope Chapel, you are, I don't even know if you'll be able to find me go through in this verse ever. I might have referenced it once or twice in passing. Because I purposely stay away from the, the scriptures that deal with money and the pastor and helping the pastor. And, and you can think about it. Think of messages I've done. Have I done messages where you need to give to the pastor and make sure he's taken care of, you know? Might have, you know, if you've been around for a while, it might have come up incidentally because I've tried to be faithful to the whole counsel of God, but I don't think I ever did a message on it. You know, I'm not doing a message on it now, by the way. I'm mentioning it for a few minutes because this is part of the thing in pagan Christianity that's not supposed to happen. But what we see in Scripture is what's happening, though, the irony is this book, Pagan Christianity, is actually emphasizing a Christianity, a form of Christianity that's more pagan than what oftentimes they're refuting because they're getting away from the Scripture, you know, and I can show you home fellowships in paganism long before, you know, Christianity rose that met at homes. Okay, so it's ridiculous to just try, try to draw a line one place. Another. So yeah, there is, it says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. By the way, where did Paul get that? From Jesus? Jesus told them to go out and minister to one another. I'll go to minister to the lost and so forth and to proclaim the gospel. And it's interesting because he clearly said in Luke 10, 7, Jesus said this, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking. This is as they're going and proclaiming the gospel. Even evangelism, you know, uh, that uh, what they provide, they're going to provide for you. Now, I'd be kind of like, oh, you know what? I can, thanks, man, but not, not anymore because I read the scripture and I realize God has a program here. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Now that's awesome because that's Luke 10, 7. What's awesome about that to me is when Paul says in uh, chapter 5, verse 18 of 1 Timothy, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Guess what he, when he, he says the scripture says this. I love this because he's quoting who? Jesus from the gospel of Luke or perhaps Matthew, which is written before Luke, which also has this statement, right? And it's awesome because he calls their writings what? The, writing, the, the statements of Jesus, he calls what? Scripture. That's awesome. So when you're talking to a non-believer who says, well, you know what? Uh, you know, the, the Gospels weren't even written down until like the second century. That's been so refuted now because we have Paul writing in the first century. Remember, Paul was killed by Nero in the late 60s. So he wrote this letter right here. 1 Timothy, not long before that, but already we know that Matthew and perhaps Luke were both written by this time because he's able to point them to the scriptures, the writings of, of what Jesus had, had stated, right? In his day, he's able to call Jesus' words scripture because they had them already. That's powerful. I know I've got off a little rabbit tail, but I, trail, but I think that's the context in which I've ever brought this passage up. That's pretty much it, you know, because I like to refer to this to sometimes to point out what Jesus uh, Jesus is being quoted here, and his words are being called Scripture in the f just after the first half of the first century, which is awesome. By the way, you can go if you want to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14. You don't have to I'll read it, but I'll read it to you if you want me to. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel. Listen to this. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. There it is. To get their living from the gospel. And in the context of 1 Timothy 5, 7, and 18, he's talking about leaders, but he says especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. In other words, he's talking about the elders there. So there's elders that have different functions. Some are working hard at preaching and teaching. Others, you know, uh, do other things as leaders because we all have different gifts. And we have different administrations of those gifts. So now go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And by the way, as you're going there, I'll just make a mention. When I mentioned 1 Corinthians 9, 14, which says those who, uh, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. What do you think Paul might have had in mind there in 1 Corinthians 9, 14? So also the Lord directed, what's Paul saying when he says, so also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel are to what? Get their living from the gospel. That seems like a reference again to Luke 10, 7, right? 
a worker is worthy of his wages when he said to go out and preach the word. Amen? Of course, the apostles preached the word. Jesus himself was an itinerant preacher. And do you think he just got money off trees? No. It says, okay, does anybody know who was supporting him financially? Who's that, bro? Mary of Magdalene. It says in the women, they gave their sustenance to support Jesus' ministry. You know? Jesus didn't, you don't see Jesus saying, no, don't, 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 don't do that. Uh, no, you see, you know, that's the way the Lord worked. I mean, he's giving them far more than they could ever give him because he's the Lord, amen. He's going to pour out his blood for them on the, church, on, on, the, on the cross. Now, 2 Timothy 4, look what Paul instructs Timothy to do. As an elder of the church and the ruling elder of that church, because he was the leader there at the church at Ephesus, uh, he says, I solemnly charge you, this is Paul telling Timothy, I solemnly charge you the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach what? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to fables or myths. But you be sober, Timothy, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So he was called to preach the word, man. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort as a leader at the church at Ephesus and appoint other elders who were strong in the Lord and knew sound doctrine and would take care of the flock. It's interesting, too, when you read the book of Revelation, you read, you know, under the angel of the church of, under the angel of the church of, under the angel of the church of, and do you think he was writing, Jesus was having John write to angels of those churches and these supernatural beings would get these letters? No, that word was a common word, angelos, which means a, which refers to a messenger or somebody who had authority to one degree or another. And we can't be absolutely sure about that. Some say it was the pastors. I don't know about that for sure but somebody that the Lord entrusted to at least receive, and these letters are to be read to the congregations. That's why we read the Word of God when we get together. Amen? That's why we're, we're reading the Word of God several times already, and we will do it several times more as we go. Now, it's interesting because when you go through the early church writings, not just by Justin Martyr, or not just the Didache, but if you read, you know, uh, you read that Polycarp was the pastor of Smyrna, you read that Ignatius was the leader of, of uh, uh, Antioch. You just go through those different, go through Ignatius' writings, you know. You're talking about, you know, many believe Ignatius was one of the disciples of the apostle John, okay. In fact, some of Ignatius' writings, for me, I'm just being honest, are too strong in some of the statements because he's like having them say, you know, I mean, they're, it's like lockstep, like almost... I'm sorry, but he is almost like a dictator at times. You're like, whoa, man, you must always obey whatever the bishop tells you to do kind of thing, you know? But it shows you, and I'm not saying there can't be abuses. There are abuses, and that's why we need to look to the New Testament. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and get anarchy, amen? Because that's what the enemy is about. He would love to see do what thou wilt in the church. Now, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, he's writing to Hebrew Christians right? Hebrews chapter 10. And these Hebrew Christians are in danger of going back to the synagogues of the Jews and worshiping with the Jews and denying Christ. And the apostle, I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews warns in chapter 6, for if after we have received the Holy Spirit and, you know, and he talks about had uh, you know, had all these wonderful experiences, and then we fall away. He warns about, man, they'd basically be damned if they, you know, obviously, uh, if someone doesn't get right with God after they fall away, they're in a serious situation. And he was concerned that they were hardening their hearts to the point where they no longer heard the voice of the Lord in Hebrews chapter 3, okay? Now, people debate whether they were saved or not, you know, but the point is this. No professing Christian should be in rebellion to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're professing Christ, whether you have believed they were saved or they weren't saved there, whatever you believe in that context, you know, uh, they were warned that they needed to continue in the faith. 
And in Hebrews 6, it says, after receiving the Holy Spirit, to me, that's indication that they, very clear indication that they had received the Holy Spirit, because it says it, right? And it talks about being impossible because Hebrews 3, if they, they harden their hearts to where they no longer hear the voice of the Lord, they're refusing to listen to the Lord. Back to repentance again. Renew them again to what? Repentance. Meaning they had repented before. Otherwise, you can't renew someone to a state they'd never been in before. So obviously some people will say, well, they never really repented in the first place. Well, it says they did before. You know, this, but now they've potentially hardened their hearts to where they won't hear the voice of the Lord, which is a concern. So, but what's interesting is in Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about how they insult the spirit of grace. They trample underfoot the blood of Christ by which they were sanctified. And that could have been, according to Justin Martyr, Justin Martyr talks about how the Jews, to come back to Judaism when he's talking to Trifle the Jew, that they would have to renounce Christ publicly and so forth. So it could be that because the persecution was ramping up in the early church, you had Jews going back to the synagogues, Christians, and being told, hey, if you want to come back to the synagogue, you have to renounce Christ. You have to trample underfoot the blood of Christ. You have to say that his, his miracles were from demons and, you have to say, and so forth. So that was a big deal to renounce Christ. So he encourages them to make sure that they're strengthened. So look at chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and what? Good deeds. We're supposed to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You have to be in fellowship to do that, by the way. Amen? Look at verse 25. Not forsaking our what? Own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. By the way, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. You know what the Greek word is for assembling there? It's episunagoge. Now what word do you hear in epa, which is like epi, which is the, you know, is the intensifier, you know? Uh, Episunagoge. What word do you hear in episunagoge? That, that's episunagoge? Synagogue. Amen? So if you're reading this in the first century, you're reading about gathering together. And the, now they're not going to think uh, probably the literal building of the synagogue, but Hebrew Christians would see that word and understand, you know, we need to get together. And the basic root understanding that they had of getting together in the first century was at the synagogues. But now they're not getting together at the Jewish synagogues. They're getting together with believers. Amen. And my only point there is not that they were meeting at a physical synagogue, but that they recognized the roots of their faith was not rooted in paganism. It was rooted in Judaism. And the purest expression of true Judaism was the Old Testament and not what it became with all of its underpinnings and legalistic uh, teachings and so forth. So these guys understood that gathering together was very, very important and it was critical because guess what? It's right after they're told not to forsake, they're gathering together, right? Verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully, he warns against, this is the strongest warning I believe in the New Testament against apostasy along with Hebrews 6. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And the word sanctified is used for salvation earlier in the same chapter, chapter 10. And has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, our pay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. See, he's warning his people not to fall away. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I read this because, not because I want to do a teaching on apostasy, but because I'm emphasizing how important it is to be in fellowship. Because in Hebrews 10, 20, three, four, and five, it's about encouraging one another, amen? About not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together. Why? Because when you do, that's the first step toward apostasy for many people. 
getting out of fellowship. It's critical that we're in fellowship. It's, in, it's critical not only that there's leaders. You know, we are, what are we called in the scripture over and over again? We are called what? Sheep, amen? And sheep have a shepherd. And Jesus is our chief, chief shepherd, amen? Pastors and elders are only the under shepherds. Okay, and I say only because it's nothing compared to being the chief shepherd, but we have what the Bible calls under shepherds, which we'll see text on that a little bit. And aphorisms, an aphorism is, it speaks of many people. Well, you ever watch the wildebeest or the gazelle on nature programs, right? What happens to the one that says, I'm a lone ranger, man. I got this. What's that? The lion will eat them. That's right, man. They're pretty typically toast, you know, especially if they're not cautious and they just think, I don't need, you know, to the flock. Man, they just get wiped out, you know. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, okay. And by the way, if you wanted some other passages, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 20, if you're taking notes, is where Jesus preaches at the synagogue there. And he goes up and he shares who he is, as he uses a messianic prophecy. Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 21 in fact, keep your finger if you want in Hebrews and go to Acts chapter 9. Because we just mentioned Episunagoge, the synagogue there. But if you go to he, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 19. Acts chapter 9, verse 19. And he took food and was strengthened, speaking of Paul. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the what? Synagogue saying he is the son of God. All those hearing him continually continue to be amazed and were saying, is this not the one who, Jerusalem, uh, who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on, his, uh, on this name, meaning the name of Jesus, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? So, and you go through the book of Acts, it was their, the, the believers often would assemble in the synagogue as long as they were allowed to, and they'd have fellowship there at times and share the gospel. Well, obviously, it wouldn't be wrong for that. It wouldn't be like, God's like, I can't believe you're in a building. There's no scripture that says thou shalt not meet in a building. And there are many scriptures that indicate, and not only indicate, but command leadership. Back to Hebrews. Back to the book of Hebrews. Look at chapter 13. Look at verse 7. As far as leadership goes, remember he's concerned that they will forsake the assembling of themselves together. They'll forsake the episynagogue, okay? But also, it wasn't just a matter of getting together with other believers, which was huge. But listen to this, look at verse 7. Remember those who what? Who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. So notice there are those who led them, and who, how do they lead them? They spoke what? The word of God to you. And consider, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So it's important to have leaders that teach the word, uh, that exhibit faith and so forth. Uh, and by the way, notice it says those. He's writing to the Hebrews. This is more than one believer, guys. They assemble together and they have leaders, plural, okay? More than just one. Some churches believe in just having one pastor, no elders. That's their denominational beliefs. And uh, they do that, I believe, based on the idea that the elders... Would, that would met together in the plural would be the elders from the different congregations in a city, not necessarily elders of a fellowship. I disagree with that personally. I believe that there should be more than one leader. And I think it's been a huge blessing for me, by the way, having other elders to pray with and to lead with. It's, a, it's been a beautiful thing. But look at verse uh, 17. Obey your what? Now, not seven, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who would give an account. Now it's interesting because there, again, there are leaders, plural, okay? So it's not this little home Bible study where a few people get together and call it church, where there's no leadership, where there's no direction, where there's no order, there's no communion. Sunday's not important. And I'm okay if people want to meet on different days of the week because the Bible says one man esteems one day above another, another all days alike. Let each be persuaded in his own mind. 
I'm persuaded from Scripture because I see them meeting on the first day of the week and it being highlighted in the first century and by the early church fathers on the Lord's Day, you know. So I do believe the Lord exalts one day above another as far as wanting us to get together, especially on that day. But I don't make it a crime if someone doesn't. But guess what? They still need to be in fellowship. They still need to be taking communion. They still need to be uh, subject to the leadership. So again, in verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders. That shows you that there's more than a two- or three-person Bible study, right? Calling a church, because that means there's more than one <laughs> a leader right there, unless they're all leaders, you know, which wouldn't make sense. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So leaders are going to give an account for the souls of those in whom they are leading. That's very, very serious. That's why it says in James chapter 3, verse 1, let, you know, see to it that not many of you become teachers, for teachers will incur a stricter judgment. That's why I do not dare come up to the pulpit without crying out to God first, without seeking his face. And I have a sense of fear and trembling about me because ultimately I serve him. But it's because I know I serve him and it's about him ultimately and I'm going to give an account for souls. That's why I don't hesitate to preach the truth. Because on Judgment Day, I want to make sure that, as Paul said, I am free from the blood of all men because I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. That's why it's important to consider the goodness and the severity of God. Preach heaven and hell. Amen. That there's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. That you can't eat at the table of the Lord and the table of devils. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You can only serve one master. You cannot serve two masters. Amen. And that we'll all stand before God to give an account for our souls. And I'm going to give an account for my preaching. And I've told the story uh, before, which I read years ago, which I thought, oh, that's a great illustration of this, of a man who with his wife was, or not, I'm sorry, with his wife, there was a gal that was going to Chicago, but didn't know her way around, and she wanted to talk to the conductor, and she was trying to get his attention because she wanted to know where a specific stop was, and the man said, hey, don't worry about it, don't bother him, I, I, I know this way around really well. And then when they got to a specific spot, he said, this is your place to get off, and she got off, you know. And she was worried because she'd already talked to the conductor previously. And she got off, and then the train went, went, went. It was super, it was freezing cold weather. Conductor comes back, hey, where is the, uh, the woman that was sitting back here? Oh, I just told her to get off a couple stops back. You what? And they backed up the train to that spot, and she was sitting there frozen to death. See to it that not many of you aspire to be teachers, for they shall receive a stricter judgment. And that man, well, I don't know how he was accountable for that uh, before the law, because he probably wouldn't be, but we are accountable for souls. So if we don't preach repentance, if we, on and on and on, I'm not going to get into a bunch of doctrine right now, but it's critical that we preach the whole counsel of God. But notice again, my main point here is that there are leaders in the church, right, uh, who give an account for souls, contrary to the entire vibe of that, you know, pagan Christianity book, which is basically promoting a pagan form of Christianity that's unscriptural in many ways and heartbreaking to be sure. Now, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Okay, now the book Pagan Christianity emphasizes the priesthood of the believer, that we're all priests. But the act that since we're all priests, there's no leadership. That's not what it means when we're all priests. What it means in that we're all priests, that we are a royal priesthood, amen? We all have access to God, amen? Male or female, in Christ there's neither male nor female. doesn't mean we don't have different roles as male and female. Certainly there are different roles as male and female. It's very clear in Scripture. But we all have access to God. We're all to represent God to people, and we're all to uh, cry out and represent people to God as we intercede for one another but even I can show you in the Old Testament where it talks about uh, the priesthood of the believer as well it doesn't mean they didn't have different functions in leadership though and that's important to understand so therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder Peter was an elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ which is also something you had to be to be an apostle according to the book of Acts and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed look at verse 2 Shepherd the flock of God among you. You see, the elders are called the what? Shepherd, okay? Shepherd the, church of, the flock of God, which is among you. Exercising what? Oversight. There it is again. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, 
but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. I mean, you don't do it for money. And unfortunately, there is a lot of that going on. Pastors will find out which church is paying the most, okay? That's ungodly. They should be saying, what is your will, Lord? Amen. I'm going to trust you to meet my needs. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. There's a problem there too. There was a shepherd, a movement called the shepherding movement in, uh, uh, that many people espoused s- several years ago to where they would just dictate every little thing about your life. Many of the church of Christ will basically want to know, make sure you're tithing. And if you're not tithing, I mean, they'll want to know how much you make and everything. And, and they'll, on top of the LA Church of Christ and so forth, I'm not sure if they're still doing that, but they're doing that for years where they can know exactly who's making what. And they're making sure that they give with 10% and so forth. And, and that becomes legalistic, you see. And he says, not lording it over those allotted to your charge. And nobody can give an instance by the grace of God in this church over 30 years that I pastored here of us lording it over people, okay? Or us seeking... Uh, or us doing things for money. Amen? Because, and I don't, and the elders aren't like that in this fellowship. They never have been by the grace of God. Nor let, as Lord and over, uh, those allotted to your charge, but proving to be what? Examples to the flock. Amen? And when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. That should be the motivation, is to shepherd the church of God. That's the Lord's people. Love his bride, love his sheep. Amen? They're the ones that he redeemed have a passion for the bride of Christ, but ultimately have a passion for the chief shepherd. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because pastors and elders, as I said, we are simply under shepherds, okay? And all of us are brothers and sisters. In fact, in this fellowship, uh, how many of you know I don't like you to personally when you call, you call me Pastor Joe? Anybody know that? Anybody know that? Raise your hand if you know that. You see on my, the door, you see that big sign and we go to my office door where it says pastor and like gold and there's like, you know, fireworks around it. No, you won't even see my name on my door. I'm not saying a pastor shouldn't have pastor on his door. Okay, I'm just saying for me. I don't like it when people come up to me and they constantly, I, I'm nothing, I'm not, okay. I mean, I gotta be very careful with this because I, I know, like Michael, right? You're teaching your kids respect and so forth for authority and so forth. And so parents sometimes say to me, you know, I want my children to be able to call you pastor because you're their pastor. I want them to understand there's leadership in the church and so forth. And I totally get that. So I'm not opposed to it, you know? But as far as like a friendship basis, I just feel kind of weird too. I hate it. My wife knows I hate this and she still does this sometimes. It drives me crazy. We'll be out. And she'll be telling somebody, yeah, my husband's an evangelist and a pastor. I'm like, and I don't like it at all because it's like also my conversation changes. Like they step back, start scrutinizing you. Uh Uh-oh, you know, or whatever, going to run or they're going to, you know, whatever their reaction is going to be. I go, just let them, you know, conversation. And she's pretty good at not doing that anymore. But once in a while, she still does it, you know. And I I praise God. My wife loves me and she's she's being a blessing. And I guess she's trying to start conversation, find out what people do and everything. And and it gives her opportunity for ministry because then she's able to say things that she wouldn't normally be able to say and be able to encourage them in their lives in some way. So I totally get it. But we're all called brethren. Amen. But even though we call each other brother, it doesn't mean there aren't certain roles. Amen? We have worship leaders, you know. Uh, and by the way, it's not rooted in paganism. Read the Old Testament, guys. Was there worship in the Old Testament? Were there worship leaders? Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We have, even have a hymn book, you know. And it was quite elaborate. Amen? So it's shame on people to say the church can't have leadership that leads worship. It's rooted not in paganism. It's rooted in God's word. Amen? Now, if you start doing pagan things, then that's wrong. But if you start saying, no worship leaders, no pastors and elders, ah, communion is not important. Ah, baptism is not really a sacrament, you know. Ah, and on and on, you drone. And, you know, buildings. And, and, and also, before you know it, you're painting yourself into a corner outside of what the church really looks like. Okay? I'm not saying you have to have a church worship leader either. It's between you and the Lord. How many are grateful we have worship leaders here? How many are grateful that they lead by example and they're humble before the Lord and that it helps us get in the presence of God when we get together on a Sunday morning? Amen? How many praise God that we do communion together and doesn't give you a sense of awe of who God is? Amen? Praise the Lord. I hate to lose all those things because losing them would be unscriptural, number one, and our walks with the Lord would be far less enriched now, it's interesting because he's saying here to, to every Christian has an obligation 
uh, to be basically a vital part of the congregation. And there's supposed to be leadership there that leads by way of example. And look at verse 6, though. He goes on and says this, or verse 5, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. How can you obey your leaders, Hebrews 3.13? How can you be subject to the elders, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, if you don't have elders, if you don't have leaders, you can't obey these scriptures. Are you with me? You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A lot of people in this movement are proud and arrogant, and they don't want to submit to leadership. A lot of times there's radical sin in their lives. They're doing their own thing, and they don't want to, they want to do their own thing. Or it's just an inner pride problem, you know? And that's a real problem before the Lord, and you get in serious trouble that way. Verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Amen? Now watch this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your what? Adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, guess what? He's the chief shepherd. He has under shepherds, you know, biblical leadership. We're just not talking about parking yourself at any church at any time and say, oh, I need a leader. I need a pastor. I make sure, and just, oh, and then they teach lies and stuff. No, you may need to make sure there's biblical leadership of like-minded brothers and sisters that fear and love the Lord that are following the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, following the teachings of the New Testament on the basis of the Old Testament prophecies and the whole word of God. Now, it's important here because now he says, your adversary devil walks by his roaring lion. In other words, we have the ultimate shepherd, Jesus, his sheep hear his voice, amen. He's appointed under shepherds, first apostles, then prophets, then pastors, evangelists, pastors, teachers, okay, which he still uses today until we attain to the unity of the faith, which hasn't happened yet, obviously. So we still have the teaching of the apostles and prophets. They're still active at the written word of God and evangelists and pastors, teachers, it's still active. But pastors are elders, and they're overseeing the flock. And it's important that there's, in verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Why? Because Satan is like a roaring lion. There's that idea about being together in a flock again. God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? One reason was so we're not deceived by men who lie in wait to deceive. Okay? On the other hand, if that leadership is usurped by the hand of the evil one, which it is in many cases, like with the new apostolic reformation, then you have all kinds of heresies being taught from the pulpit and not checked by the word of God. And people just saying, I got this feeling or I had this dream and they don't go to the word of God and test it. The Bible says, test everything. Amen. Hold fast to that which is good. And then you get all kinds of error. So you have to be careful in whatever... Uh, First of all, we need a biblical expression of the church, where the real church stand up. We're reading what the real church had leaders. And that's been the emphasis of the study, is that the real church has leaders, because that's one of the things they attack in that book. And that's why I started with the scripture, and I let you know what was happening when we look at the, was the apostle. Look at the, the letters we're reading, right? They're written by the leaders of the church, amen? And they're communicated by under leaders or under shepherds, pastors, and so forth. But... You're supposed to, verse 9, resist him, that is resist the devil, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You do not want to be that antelope. You don't want to be that gazelle. You don't want to be that wildebeest who says, I don't need leadership. Because then you put yourself outside the purview of God's church. And you end up in the domain in the kingdom of Satan. Why do you think it says in, why do you think Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, or Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, if your brother sins against you, go to him privately. If he doesn't repent, bring one or two with you. It continues in rebellion against God. If he still doesn't repent, bring him before the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, you know, he's to be considered like a, a heathen and tax gatherer. And why do you think in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul said when they weren't disciplining that man for having sex with his mom, to put him out of the church. And by the way, that church was not having, didn't have good leadership. And Paul pulled rank and said, when I'm there with you in spirit, put that guy out of your midst and hand him over to what? Satan. That his spirit may be saved, may be saved, may be saved in the day of salvation. That's if he would have repented because the next chapter says, don't be deceived, fornicators, adulterers, and so forth won't enter God, inherit God's kingdom. 
So the hope was that he'd repent. Well, guess what? Outside the church is the kingdom of Satan. If you put yourself outside the church and reject Christian leadership and so forth, then you're putting yourself in the kingdom of Satan. You're easy prey for the enemy. Are you with me so far? Amen. Pretty heavy when you think about it. Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Paul is uh, addressing the elders, leaders, overseers, under shepherds at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. He says, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the what? The elders, the elders of the church. Now look at verse 28. I just want to get to the chase and what one of the warnings he gave. Verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. The elders are supposed to guard the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers. We're seeing, it's a few times now where we've seen the word elder and then overseer together. To shepherd the church of God. I wish I had time to get in the Greek for elder and so forth, but I don't. To, to shepherd the church. There's the word shepherd now. Elder, synonymous with an overseer, synonymous with a shepherd. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's why every pastor, shepherd, overseer, elder, should really take shepherding the church of God seriously. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's why it's critical that pastors lead the flock and they warn them because Satan will come in like a flood. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. You could look up at a lot of heretical movements, cults that were started. They were started by leaders that forsook the flock and started their own weird thing and got away from the Bible and started having their own secret revelations that contradicted the scripture. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering... Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to what? To God and to what? The word of his grace. The word of God, guys. That's why we preach the word of God so strong, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Powerful. Powerful stuff there, you guys. That's why shepherds under shepherds are so important. And the scriptures, by the way, keep in mind what we're seeing, let's not forget, we are seeing also that the elders or the leaders, they will give an account for the souls of the congregations, right? So they're accountable to the congregations. Account of the Lord ultimately, but there's accountability to the congregation to teach them truth. And what do pastors do? What do shepherds do? They feed the sheep and they also what? Protect the sheep, amen? And feeding is... You know, when Peter was restored by Jesus, he said to him to tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Amen. We feed them. We protect them and so forth. And that's always been my aspiration is to make sure I and you, we all together here, well done, good and faithful servants in the end. Amen. So, but it's not just the leaders that are accountable to the Lord. It's also the sheep that are accountable to the leadership before the Lord because he goes on to say, and I didn't finish quoting Hebrews chapter. Go to Hebrews chapter 13 again. I, for, I forgot to get back to verse uh, 17. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now look at the le- next part of that. Hebrews 13, uh, verse 17b. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be what? Unprofitable for you. So you're also, there's accountability to where if you're following the Lord, and we're all following the Lord together, amen, if the pastor's following the Lord and seeking the Lord and sincere about it, he's going to be a blessing to the congregation. If the congregation, if they're sincere about following the Lord and they're doing God's will and they're going forward, they're going to be a blessing to the pastor, amen? When people get off at all, it just causes problems and let's try to get, not to get off. That doesn't mean you won't run into struggles in your life. That's why we provide biblical counseling. We provide prayer. That's all part of, part of it. It doesn't mean that I won't or my wife won't or we all won't, we're all going to struggle at times, amen? The key is, is what is your trajectory? Where are you headed, right? Not are you perfect or not, but are you putting Jesus first in all things? And that's very, 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 very important. Now, I'm sorry, I've gone a little bit over. <laughs> I love that passage. They got together as long as time allowed. They didn't have a very specific time, but we don't get, to, we, time would allow us a lot more. People just want to go, home or they want to go eat or whatever but i also believe the the brain can't endure much more than the fanny can endure 
So, <laughs> so I want to make sure I don't, you know, uh, go too long. Anyway, I love you guys. And, and that's just a book that's come out that's making its rounds and it's causing people to fall. And that's because it draws, it makes some good points because it talks about the importance of getting together, you know, talks about the, encourages people to build one another up. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, okay, verses 12 through 14, which I, I quote this passage all the time, you know, but it says, see to it that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, amen, to where you end up what? Falling away from the living God, right? That's verse 12, but then verse 14 says, we are his house if we hold fast our confession uh, from the beginning to the end. But what the, our first confession to the end. But verse 13, sandwiched between verses 12 and 14, says to encourage one another all the more and encourage one another daily. So we're supposed to encourage each other daily. Okay? So uh, that book throws the baby out with the bathwater, but it emphasizes something that is good, even though I don't recommend the book because there's too, much, too many lies in there. But the, what, what we recommend, too, is that we're supposed to be building each other up. Amen? We're supposed to be encouraging one another. So we have all kinds of functions and fellowship times. I mean, when our service isn't over when we pray and say amen from the preaching time. What do you usually see in our fellowship for a long time afterwards? Half hour, hour, or whatever. People fellowshiping, encouraging one another, praying for each other, amen, getting together, you know. We have all kinds of different Bible studies and, and, and small groups and home groups throughout uh, uh, the, the week that, every, that many of you go to. Most of you go to one or more groups or you belong to a group and uh, uh, or more, and that's beautiful, you know. We have Feast of Charities, you know. We, have, we just had a men's retreat, amen. They're, they're getting ready for a women's retreat, and there's just so much edification that goes on in these things. We have mutual ministry one to another. That's very important as well, okay. So my point is, is we don't just come and, and, and hear the word. I've warned you before, don't be like, the sea, uh, be like the Dead Sea, where water flows in, but it doesn't flow out, amen. Be like the Sea of what? Galilee, man, which is beautiful. The Dead Sea is dead because water flows in but not out. Be like the Sea of Galilee, man. The Jordan flows in, the water flows out, and it's teeming with life, amen? So you want to receive God's word, but you also want to take God's word and share it with others, amen? And I can't tell you, I've been, a lot of pastors get burned out. I don't get burned out by the grace of God because I spend time with him in his word all these years, but also one of the key things for me that blesses me is receiving from my brothers and sisters in Christ, not just the fellow elders who I love, but right here at Blessed Hope and other people and other fellowships throughout the body of Christ around the world have just built and blessed into my life and spoken to my life and encouraged me. I get encouraged by you guys when we fellowship. You know, when I hear your testimonies, hear what Jesus is doing in your lives or what he's doing in your family. It's all beautiful. Let's keep encouraging one another and keep loving one another and let's keep allowing the real church to stand up and shine the light of Christ and point to Jesus until the, the day of salvation. Amen. Praise God. Can we all please stand?